Well, Devin introduced himself, but I didn't introduce myself. For those who may not know, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church, and it is an honor to be with you again here in person and also to um, have you join us online. Thank you for joining us online. Um, you caught us in part five of a 12-part series we're calling Free From That, the series in which we're looking into things that we are free from that sometimes we may not even know that we have been freed from. So toward that end, here we go. Anybody hungry? Anybody hungry? <clears throat> now I feel bad. You know what I've learned over the years? Number one, don't trust me to cook your meal. But I've learned this. You ever experienced that? Sometimes blending two really good things can result in one really bad thing. Texting and driving? 
working vacation. Faith and works. When it comes to how we relate to God, faith, great thing. Good works, great thing. Sometimes, however, combining two really good things results in something that you nor I really want. This morning I want to make this case that relating to Christ by blending faith and works doesn't actually preserve the best of both worlds, but it actually ruins the whole thing. Did you hear, by the way, the emotion in the room when I actually put the sandwich in the blender? <laughs> if you have grown up anything like me, and some of you haven't, some of you haven't, you may have seen this and I have seen this. Well-intentioned people, myself included, who have taken a mixture of faith with works and mashed them together and been confused at times about how in the world I truly relate to Christ. We have mixed in incredibly good intentions and created what we've called blue laws. Some of you are familiar with them. What, what is allowed and what is not allowed on Sundays. Some of those have been officially recorded in our government annals, and some are unofficial, very unofficial. Like no mowing your lawn on Sundays, right? That's an unofficial rule for some, isn't it? No washing the car, no whatever on Sundays. These things that we bring together with our faith and works. Some of you are familiar with an, maybe an older version of works, and that is there's a, a passage in the Old Testament that talks about tattooing, that, that you shouldn't get a permanent mark on your body, believe it or not. And so where I went to school in the time that I went to school, you were not allowed to get a tattoo for that reason because we took an old covenant idea and moved it forward to the new, and we attributed righteousness to it. See, for all of us, we have this tendency to take some of the old covenant, some of the old way that people used to relate to God through in the, old, in the Bible world, that would be what we call the Abrahamic, particularly the Mosaic covenant, what is often referred to as the Old Testament or Old Covenant. And now in our day and age, we merge it sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally with the new covenant, a new way of relating to Christ. Both have their place, both have value, both are incredibly instructive. But when you jam the two of them together into a Christian experience, it can create one really bad thing. This isn't just my cute idea of doing this here. This is actually what the Apostle Paul taught in the early church as they were trying to figure out how do we now relate to Christ. All that they knew was the old covenant. All that they knew was a world of blue laws and and what should be eaten, and when it should be celebrated, and where you should go here, and exactly how you worship there. That's all that they knew. And what is being introduced is a brand new faith system, not just a new version of Judaism, but a brand new way of relating to God that Paul is trying to drill down into the hearts of the early, early church. That is the place where we're at in the book of Galatians. So I want to invite you to that space again with me. We've been looking, if you've been with us for a couple weeks, we've been looking at some hard 
teachings of Paul, and I have pushed hard into some spaces that have created tension. I just want to acknowledge that I know that. My interest is not in being provocative. My interest is in being as clear as I can to present the gospel as well as I understand it without pulling back from what Paul is teaching. And so what he teaches is really strong. And so when I teach that, I'm trying not to pull back from him, nor am I trying to offend anyone. That's certainly not a goal that I wake up with to do, that's for sure. However, let's get into what Paul has to say here. We're in the little book of Galatians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, no problem. There's a Bible near you in a chair, or you can steal your friend's phone and look it up on the YouVersion app, whatever you need to do. But Galatians chapter 3 is where we're going to be today, and, and Paul is going to make this case, I believe, that you get to choose one or the other, faith or works, but you can't have them both. Pick one, one or the other. Let's look at the the text here, what he writes, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I'd like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by believing what you heard. Let's pause it right there, because verse 2 is the, the key verse of what Paul sets up for the entire section that we're in this morning. So let's look again at verse 2. He says, I'd like to learn just one thing. So this is his kind of thesis statement. This is what he's writing about. I want to learn something, and then he puts it out there. It's a rhetorical question. He doesn't want an answer to it yet. Did you receive the Spirit? So his first question is about receipt of the Spirit. Let's pause on that for a minute. This is so important for Paul and important for us to understand. Did you receive the Spirit? He said, how did you get the Spirit? So that's his starting point. You should know, if you don't know this, that when Jesus left the planet, he left and he said that, I'm going to give you, before I go, I'm going to give you another counselor. In fact, in John 14, 16, Jesus put it this way. He said, and I will ask the Father, speaking to his disciples, I'm going to ask the Father, Heavenly Father, and he will give you another advocate or counselor or comforter to help you and be with you forever. There's one word up here that I want to look at with you, and it's an odd word. You may not have picked it up on your own to, to think it's worth looking at again, but it's this word, another. I want to give you, he says, I'm going to give you another advocate to help you. In the English language, we really just have one word for another. We have context clues that help us know what that means. But in the Greek, there's actually different words for another. Stay with me on this for a minute. I want you to imagine that you and I are sitting down together, and I'm filling out uh, some paperwork that requires me to write with pen, okay? And I have a black pen that I'm using to fill out the paperwork, and my pen runs out of ink. You're sitting across the table, you have a couple pens in your little pen holder. You have a blue one and you have a black one. I might say, can you hand me another pen? Now, in that, you will not know, except by context, which should you hand me. I was using a black pen. You have the choice of giving me a black one or a blue one. When I say another one, you might just decide, well, I'll give you whatever is in front of me because you've asked for another one. If you give me a blue one, it's another one of a different kind. If you give me a black one, it's another one of the same kind. In Greek, there are two different words for those two different versions of another. There's another of a different kind or another of the same kind. This word here is another of the same kind. What Jesus is saying to the disciples is, just as I've been with you, I want you to know I'm going to leave, and I'm going to give you another of the same kind of me. 
I'm going to give you another one to guide you. I'm going to give you another one to be a comforter and a teacher, someone who can illuminate the word of God to you. I'm going to leave, but I'm not going to leave you with another of a different kind. I'm going to leave you with another of the same kind, which is the context for where Paul asks, how did you, he says, verse 2, how did you, did you receive this spirit, another one like Jesus, basically, did you receive the spirit? And then he gives the two options. Here's our two options. And he, he puts an or in there. Did you receive it by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? These, that's it, the or. This is the first time he's going to say this again. They shouldn't be mixed. Which one? Pick one. The or is there on purpose. There's not an and. Did you receive the Spirit by what you were doing or by believing what you heard? That is it. The end. Did you receive the Spirit by what you have done or by what you have believed from what you heard? That's it. And he goes on in verse 3. Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, he says, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? So he's saying, guys, you started the right way. When I was with you, you were going the right direction. This thing started by you understanding it was your belief in Christ's resurrection and the gift of the Spirit that allows you to relate to Christ. But now it's as if you're taking the works of the flesh and you're adding to it and you're mixing together and you want to continue in a way in which you did not start. And he goes on. Have you experienced, verse 4, so much in vain, if it really was in vain? And so again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by, and here's our choice again, by the works of the law or by believing what you have heard? Again, pick one. <laughs> by works of the law, or by believing what you have heard. Now, by the way, this is especially hard because who Paul is speaking to are people who have an incredibly strong work ethic. Now, they're not German, maybe not that strong, okay? But they are Jewish, primarily, many Gentiles, but people who have been accustomed to and influenced by a strong, and I would argue godly, Jewish work ethic. And so you have these people who desperately want to honor God. It comes from an incredibly beautiful place that our lives will be given over in service to God. Not unlike to some degree what Devin even shared here this morning. A desire to walk with God and to serve him whatever the next step might be. A beautiful place is where that comes from. And so he's speaking to people who want deeply to honor God with their lives. And he knows that the tendency is going to be, for people like that, not only are you going to work hard when you show up 9 to 5 or 6 to 5 or, you know, 24 hours a day, whenever you're working in your long shifts, but the tendency is also going to be to transport that into how we relate to God and how we relate to Christ. And so he decides, you know, the best thing that I can do is I'm going to try to give them an example of who kind of did this well. I'm going to give them an example of someone from their own faith tradition. I'm going to talk for a minute about one of their heroes of the faith. I'm going to talk about the man who is the father of all in the Jewish world. I'm going to talk for a minute about Abraham. Because however Abraham 
made himself right before God, however Abraham was justified, however he was declared righteous, should serve, should it not, as an example for everybody else who would look at Abraham and say, this is the man who is, in a way, the forefather of our faith, which is exactly where he goes next, verse 6. He says, so also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Such a big verse, such a big idea for that moment, that Abraham believed God. Abraham didn't work for his righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was credited, it was given to him as righteousness. And then he goes on, verse 7. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So let's look at this again. Saying in verse 8, Scripture foresaw that God would, look at that with me, would justify the Gentiles by faith. There's our justify word again. That God would look in the future at all who are outside of faith in him and say, here's the way to get right with me. Again, that's a legal term that if you were to walk into a court of law and you were to have charges against you and the judge would be like, I'm going to drop those charges, you have just been legally justified. No charges against you, you have right standing. You can leave that courtroom with no heavy conscience. You can leave that courtroom knowing no one is going to chase you down. No one is going to send you any more notices. You have no fear about the law coming against you. You have been justified. And that is what Paul says. God looked forward and said, Gentiles will be justified. All charges against God dropped. All shame that you carry dropped. All future worry that someday God is going to chase you down and remind you of your failure and your shame and your sin and your past and all of those things are going to come, that has been dropped. You don't have to hold going forward that fear and anxiety of a distance between you and God because Christ has justified you through what? <laughs> through faith alone, through belief alone. It's crazy. So those who rely, verse 9, those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so Paul plays with this idea of reliance. He says in verse 9, those who rely on faith are blessed. But then, verse 10, he talks about those who rely on the works of the law. Look at verse 10. For all who rely... On the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Let's pause on that for a minute. And that is a curse, isn't it? You have that feeling? You even have that feeling with people? Like you're going to be cursed if you don't continue to do everything that they want you to do. Maybe you have a relationship like that. Maybe you have a family member like that. Maybe sometimes if you look back in your own life, you think maybe I treated somebody like that. But cursed are you if you don't continue to jump through all the hoops that I need you to jump through. If you've ever been in a relationship like that, you know how entirely exhausting it is. That you can please this person this week as long as you do what they say, but then next week you know that if they call on you again, if you don't do that, they're not going to be pleased with you. Then the week after that, that's going to come again, and you must constantly, without fail, deliver what they need. We've all had people in our lives like that, and it's entirely exhausting. And that's what Paul says. This, by the way, is the burden of the law, my friends. 
Make sure that you please the law this week. If you'd prefer to rely on works of the law because you don't like how squishy and free faith is, if you'd rather bring in some stuff from the old covenant, let's just get some of those blue laws and make sure nobody you know, mows their lawn on Sundays. Let's just get, make, bring some of those laws and make sure people don't get the tattoos or at least get small ones and in the right places. Let's just bring in some things from the old covenant. If you want to do that, he's saying, pick one. Pick faith or pick works but you can't mash them together because that isn't how it started. When you mash them together, he says, if you choose works, just so you know, you are now obligated to that master, and that master is relentless. If you do not follow the speed limit to its entirety at every road that you ever travel on, you are violating, and you're under the curse of the law. If you don't stop at three seconds at every stop sign and look left, right, left before you roll, you're under the curse of the law. This is a law, and you know this, and I know this, It's a law that is absolutely relentless and will chase you down. You will not find, and Paul is going to argue, you will not find the justification you're looking for through the law. You will never get the relief in the court of law before God by following the law. However, my heart, and I don't know about yours, confession, my heart would prefer some version of law so that I can control my universe. I would prefer to have a clear code of ethics and morality that could be followed, that I could apply to you and maybe you could apply to me and I could know who's right and who's wrong and who's in good standing and who I should avoid. I would prefer some of that sometime. I don't know if you can relate. But what Paul presses on in the early church in its earliest form of Christianity is, friends, do not blend even two good things because sometimes when you do that, It creates a mess. He goes on. Verse 11. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous, they're going to live by faith. The law isn't based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. That's it. But there is good news. Verse 13 and 14. Give us the good news. And this is so powerful for the early church and maybe for you and me to process Christ, he says, verse 13, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. 14, he redeemed us, and here's the purpose. He redeemed us, he bought us back. In order that purpose statement, in order that the blessing, follow his train of thought with me, the blessing that was given to Abraham. Remember that blessing? When Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. He redeemed us in order that the blessing that was given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So that, here's our key word, that by faith, not by works, by faith, we might, and then he comes back to the beginning, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. He returns again to where he started. Remember his opening question in verse 2? He's kind of saying, can you remind me where you got the Spirit again? How did the Spirit of promise come to you? Was it through works of the law or was it by believing? I forget. Can someone remind me in the room? And he finishes with the same statement. He says, Christ came to us, redeemed us, so that by faith, by believing, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is very instructive. 
Here's what he's saying about that, and here's what I want to say about the Spirit of God. Because when you take, what Paul is saying is the Spirit of God is going to be, in a way, taking the place of the old covenant law that you used to follow. The Spirit will now guide you more than the Ten Commandments, more than the old covenant. And this is a brand new way of thinking. The reason this is important is because Jesus said, another counselor of the same kind, I'm going to give to you. Just like you could rely on me for guidance, you can rely on the Spirit of God for guidance. To which I want to say this about the Spirit, is that the Spirit, if I can put it this way, the Spirit rules over the rules. If I can put it that way. That the Spirit now rules over the rules of what used to be. That instead of just lining up the old covenant and saying, thou shalt not and thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt, now all of a sudden, and this gets really squishy and uncomfortable, especially for people like me who like control and order and like to know where things go. Now all of a sudden the spirit is in control, isn't in charge. And that makes me completely out of control. It doesn't mean that the spirit of God removes all biblical ideas, my goodness, not at all. But I do want us to remember that at this time of writing, there was no Bible yet, right? And so how would the early Christians even know what is the right thing to do or not to do? They could not physically. There was no scriptures in their homes yet. They couldn't do a daily devotional routine like some are accustomed to doing. It just didn't exist. And so how does one know how to walk with God on a regular basis? To which Paul argues, friends, the Spirit, and this is my language, the Spirit rules over the rules. To push in a little further on that, put it another way, that Christians now follow a guide rather than, more than a rule book. That rather than just depending upon the old covenant law, that the Spirit as a guide to illuminate our path, to show us what should be, is where Paul directs people now. That is incredibly squishy, right? That is incredibly loose. But the Spirit of God doesn't just operate in a vacuum. The Spirit of God functions within the broader plan and work of God. That what Paul is arguing for here is that by faith, when we place our faith in Christ, the spirit of promise comes to us to guide us and lead us so that we can begin to know how to navigate. Friends, I've left you personally in this room with a lot of tension the past couple weeks for those who've been here hearing me. And some of the tension I've left you with is as I've been trying to make the case for faith alone in Christ alone for salvation with nothing else added onto that. You've asked me some great questions about how then should we relate to one another? How should I relate to someone who acts in a way that I think is sinful or wrong? How is it that my children should engage with people of different sexual identity or orientation? How is it that we should handle biblical commands that I have for a lifetime felt were sinful or wrong? Are you just telling me that we should drop it all and all we need to do is trust Christ and hold hands and sing kumbaya and hope for rainbows and unicorns. Is that what you're telling me? No. And I don't think that's what Paul is saying either. Don't go to that extreme on me. But also don't miss the tension. I've left the tension for a reason. That I think the gospel at its essence is what Paul is teaching. That by grace alone through faith, not by works, we are justified before Christ. And when we merge old and new, we get a mess. That we don't, and I'm going to go back to this, that relating to Christ by blending faith and works doesn't preserve the best of both. It ruins the whole thing. I do believe 
Ephesians 2.10 teaches this, that we are saved unto good works. We are saved to do good things. Good deeds, morals, ethics are part of the Christian experience. But they are an add-on after that moment of salvation where we stand justified before God not because we have merged faith and works, but because we have intentionally separated two good things and said, I stand before God alone on the basis of belief. I rely on faith as a son or a daughter of Abraham. And that God gives us another counselor, the Spirit of God, then to guide us to know how then do I live? How then do you live with the people around you that you disagree with? How then do you live with the people around you who have a very different moral and ethical worldview? How then do you live in that space? The Spirit of God guides. Paul asks the question, how did you receive the Spirit? It was by faith. And the Spirit does use, I believe, the written Word of God to guide us and illuminate our path and to teach us so that we can learn from the Scriptures how we can interact. Yes, absolutely. So that we can learn as people of God, what are some of God's ideals for how to engage this world? But friends, we don't relate to Christ because we have merged two great things together. That creates a mess. This is a protein shake, cholesterol shake, whatever shake that I don't want to drink. And I don't think you do either. And what Paul teaches us here this morning is essentially to the early church and even to us now. Friends, pick one. Relate to Christ by faith or, or, or works. But do not marry them together. Pick one. Pick one. And if you relate to Christ by faith alone, you'll receive the blessing of God, the promised Holy Spirit to guide you in a future that you may not be able even to imagine right now. Is there more tension? Yes. Is it squishy? Yes. Is it hard to trust the Spirit? Incredibly, yes. But the other option? Stinks. My hope for you is that we will never be people who mix what should be separated. Even two very good things. Will you pray with me this morning? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I thank you for the chance to get into Paul's writing this morning and to see how he tried to guide this early church. I pray that you would help us as we strive to do good things, as we strive to be people who walk with you, who honor you with the very fiber of our being, who like... The, the Jews and even early Gentiles have a, a work ethic, if you will, that is directed in a good and godly way to honor you with the, the best that we have. Those are beautiful intentions. But I pray that you would help us to keep clean what it needs to be kept clean, that to keep separate what should be separate, not to marry the faith that we have come to you with with the later works that we add to our life. I pray that you'd help us not to marry old covenant with a new covenant. You'd help us to keep separate what needs to be separate. 
remembering that sometimes mixing, blending, even two good things creates one really bad idea. Father, remind us of the gift of the blessing of your spirit to guide us into all the complexities and nuances of this life under the gift of the new covenant. So, Father, we thank you for your love and care for us. I pray you give us the courage to engage, to push back, to wonder, to question, even the things that we hear this morning. We can walk deeper in our faith with you and deeper in our love for one another. It's in Jesus' name that we